Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> it is good to be in the house of God, to be gathered together with a house well filled. It seems like it's been a little while. Chosen to read or, yeah, read, preach out of the book of Esther today. <clears throat> so I'll be doing a bunch of reading. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll do a bunch of reading. Um, but before I get started, I'm sure you'll notice sooner or later that I have a red eye. And on Friday there was some FM got in there and caused some irritation. Made studying kind of difficult. And hopefully it won't be too much of a bother to me and Hopefully it won't be too much of a bother to you, and if it is, feel free to look the other way. <clears throat> okay, we start off here in Esther, being introduced to Ahasuerus the king. And we don't know a lot about his reign, like some of the other kings, like Nebuchadnezzar and some of those, but Ahasuerus was probably a uh, pretty normal king in those days. Whatever he said went, and he could have somebody killed just for almost no reason at all, and nobody wanted to displease him. I read an account that I'm not sure where they got this information, but one time he was uh, on the march with his army and came to a bridge that he wanted to cross, and a storm had blown the bridge down. And he got very upset, and so he found the people that built the bridge and had them killed. And then he had his army chastise the river with chains so that the river would learn to behave. That's the kind of person he was, kind of irrational and proud and full of himself. <clears throat> Thought he could rule the world. He was also the father of Darius, who was in the time of Daniel. It doesn't talk about Ahasuerus in the book of Daniel, as if Daniel was under him, but he might have been. I don't know how that all works. Um, yeah, Daniel 5.31 says, And Darius the Median took the kingdom from Belshazzar, and he was the son of Ahasuerus. <clears throat> so let's start in verse 3 and read some there. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even an hundred and fourscore days. That was quite a party, 180, 180 days that he spent showing all these his servants, all the people that were answering to him, showing him how great, them how great he was. All his glory and majesty and riches. I suppose this really made him feel like a great person. For a half a year he's showing these people his greatness. And then in verse 5, when those days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both great and small, seven days, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So he wasn't done with his parties yet. He wanted another week to uh, bless the people in the city. Everybody, small and great, could come to this party. And they had drink there. Everybody could drink whatever they wanted. They didn't have to drink if they didn't want to. And lo and behold, the king got drunk. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, then he decided he's going to show off one more thing. He's going to show off his beautiful wife. And so he sent some servants to get his wife who, by the way, was having a party with the other women, and told her to come. I want to show you off to all my, uh, all these people here, who were probably also drunk. 
but she refused to come. Now, was that a good thing for her to do or not? To me, it seems like a good thing to do because when kings get drunk and want to show off their wives, it can get uh, pretty indecent. And it would appear like that's what she knew would happen, and so she refused to come. So I would like to lift her up as an example of protecting her own modesty, even in the face of likely losing her position. <clears throat> she knew what, it was, what was likely going to happen if she doesn't obey the king. She well knew that, possibly even the loss of life. But for her, preserving her virtue and honor were more important than all those things. And sure enough, the king was angry. It says he was very angry, and his anger burned within him. So it wasn't just that he was upset, but it was just consuming him. That's all he could think about. Oh, this is horrible. My wife embarrassed me in front of my friends. <clears throat> I'm surprised that he didn't have her killed on the spot, because that was the kind of king he was. But it doesn't seem like he did that. It doesn't even seem like she was killed at all. But he said he, he needs to talk with his wise men. What are we supposed to do with this queen that doesn't listen to me? And they had a conference, and they started discussing this. And, well, you know what's going to happen if we let this go? If we don't do something about this, then all the men's wives are going to start not listening to their husbands. They're not going to be subject to him anymore, and we're going to have chaos in the whole land. Who knows, maybe the women are even going to take over. We can't have that happen. So, let's make a law. It's almost amusing, this law that they made, and that they uh, wrote it all down and sent it all throughout the country in the mail, saying that husbands are supposed to bear rule in their house. And all the women are supposed to listen to their husbands. Okay, this was a law now by the Medes and the Persians. Can't be changed. That took care of the problem. Okay, well that was good. He took care of that problem. And then in verse chapter 2, After these things, when the wrath of the king Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her and that she was no longer his wife. So, oh, okay, I'm without a wife. I need to find one. <clears throat> so since he was the king, he could do whatever he wanted. And he decided he wants the prettiest woman in the whole kingdom. So he sent his servants to go throughout all the land and find the prettiest women they could find and bring them to the king. So that's where Esther comes in. It says, Now in Shushan the palace there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jai, Cher, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, so it almost seems like he was related to Saul, who was also a Benjamite, the son of Kish, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, <clears throat> for she had neither father nor mother. And the maid was fair and beautiful whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So Esther was an orphan. She had some issues to work through in her young life, <clears throat> lost both her parents, not sure how old she was, and she was in a strange land, wasn't in the land of Israel anymore, but fortunately she had a very good cousin who adopted her and took care of her. Unfortunately, she was beautiful. And as such, she caught the eye of the wife hunters. Sometimes it's not a blessing to be beautiful. 
As I read through this, I wondered why Mordecai didn't keep her hidden. It would seem like if I would have had any idea that that would happen, I would have kept my daughter hidden so they can't find her. But at any rate, they found her and they decided she needs to come to the king as well. Wonder if she could have refused, like Vashti did. I'm not going to come. What would have happened if Esther would have said, no, I'm not going to come? I think most, probably most of the girls or people that they wanted to bring to the king thought this was a special thing. I can maybe be the queen of the king. That would be really special. So most people wanted to go. I'm not sure if Esther did or not, but it's a little hard for me to believe with her character the way she was that she would have have longed for something like that. Verse 8, so it came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree was heard and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace to the custody of Haggai that Esther was brought also unto the king's house to the custody of Haggai, the keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him And she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her things for her purification, and with such things as belongeth to her, and seven maidens, which were meet to be given her out of the king's house. And he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. So it's interesting to me that immediately when she was taken to this house, that the keeper of the women chose her above all the others and gave her special favors. What was it about her that made him do that? I'm not sure what it was. It reminds me a little bit of Daniel when he was there with the king. You know, he had uh, special favors. It seemed like everybody that saw him just blessed him and the king wanted him to be the head man and Is it something to do with the blessing of God on the Jews? Possibly. It seemed like there was some Jews that God just placed special blessings on, and they were chosen above all others. So this took a long time for them to get ready to see the king. It took 12 months says six months with a certain kind of purification and six months with another kind of purification and after 12 months then she was ready to be checked out by the king. Now I find this rather disgusting how he went about choosing his wives. They spent a night with the king, each one of them did, and whatever he liked best was the one that was going to be his wife. I find it rather ironic that he was so concerned about Vashti's bad example to the other women because she didn't listen to her husband. What about his bad example in choosing a wife? What if all the other men in the country would have decided this is a good way to choose a wife? But of course he was totally unaware of his own faults, which I would say was much worse. Okay, now reading verse... uh, No, I don't think we'll read that. Talk a little bit about it. When the virgins were getting ready to go in to see the king, it says they could have whatever they wanted to make themselves beautiful. There was no lack of, I don't know if they had makeup in those days, probably painting their face and putting on jewelry and fancy clothes and whatever they wanted they could have to make themselves the most attractive to the king so that he would like them the best. But this is what it says of Esther in verse 15. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was to come come to go in unto the king, she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. So she just did whatever Haggai said she should and She was fine with that. She didn't spend any extra time trying to deck herself out. 
or to gain the attention of the king. <clears throat> but in spite of them, that, it says, all them that looked upon her, she found favor in their sight. So there's something special about her, and I don't think it was just her looks. It was probably the, the uh, character that was coming out of her, or they could tell just by looking at her that there was something different about her. <clears throat> A strength of character there that was attractive. So when Esther was taken into the king... It says, and the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. One thing that I found interesting is that it says this was in the seventh year of his reign, and if you notice back in the first chapter, that when he had this big party, it was the third year of his reign. So this was four years later till he finally got a wife. That would seem like a long time, but they seemed like they had plenty of time back then. If they have a feast for 180 days, you know, that would just be unheard of for us. But anyway, it took four years for him to get a, get a wife. And then in verse 18, then the king made a great feast unto all provinces unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast. And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. I find that very interesting that the feast that he made for Esther was a completely different attitude than what it was when he had the feast with his princes and his rulers. This was a feast of release to the provinces, whatever that means. It seemed like it would be lifting some of the laws that were oppressing them changing the laws to make it easier for the people to exist, and also giving gifts. Was that a result of Esther's effect on the king? Did she have an effect on the king that made him feel much more benevolent? I would kind of like to think that that was part of the things, that he had a different type of a feast because of who she was. <clears throat> Somehow with her character, it just didn't seem to have a a feast of gluttony and drinking and reveling and that kind of stuff, but rather of being good to people. <clears throat> so she became queen, but she never told anyone who she was, who, who her people were, because Mordecai told her that. <clears throat> Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her. For in spite of the fact that she was now the queen, she still listened to Mordecai just like when she was his daughter. Being queen did not change her outlook in life at all. It did not change her character. It did not cause her to become proud. But Mordecai didn't just ignore Esther either. He was still concerned about how she was doing and what's happening in her life. And so he began sitting in the king's gate. And I don't know what that all means. If anybody could sit there that wanted to, or does that mean he was being employed by the king? But anyway, he sat in the king's gate where he could have some contact with Esther. And one day, while he was there, he heard two people talking, making plans to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, get rid of him for some reason. There was some speculation that um, they were in cohorts with Haman, and he would have liked to get rid of the king so he could be king. We don't know that at all, but... Anyway, they were trying to get rid of the king, and he heard that. And so he told Esther. And Esther told the king and said that Mordecai heard that two men were going to kill him. And so they checked it out, and they found it that it was going to be true. So they were both hanged on the tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. 
So even though the king had taken away Esther and had uh, made a big change in their lives, he was still um, willing to preserve the life of the king, trying to help out. He could have maybe thought, well, if the king is killed, then Esther could come back and live with me. But that wasn't his thought. So then we come to chapter 3, where it talks about Haman. Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamada, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. Now what Ahasuerus saw in Haman that made him do that, I don't know. He seemed like not the kind of guy you'd want to promote because even though there was supposedly good friendship between there, that could change in an instant. And Haman probably wouldn't hesitate to take Ahasuerus' life if he thought it was an advantage to him. And also the other way around. It says, All the king's servants and all that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. And it doesn't say why he didn't bow. Um, Later on it says, um, yeah, maybe we should read three and four. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gates, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass, when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. So it seemed like the king's servants talked to Mordecai and said, Why don't you bow? And Mordecai replied that he was a Jew. So why wouldn't a Jew bow to Haman? I don't know. But we do notice that it says Haman, Haman the Agagite. Well, Agag was the king of the Amalekites that Saul didn't kill like he was supposed to. And so there was a curse on the Amalekites. And uh, Mordecai would have known that. And so possibly he was not bowing because of that curse that God had put on the Amalekites. But for whatever reason, it seemed like it was related to the fact that he was a Jew, that he was not bowing to Haman. And Mordecai knew what kind of a man Haman was, but that didn't make any difference, even when he knew that they were going to tell Haman, hey, Haman, did you notice Mordecai isn't bowing to you? And then Haman started watching, and yep, that's right. When Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then Haman was full of wrath. And he thought it wasn't bad enough to just kill Mordecai by himself. But rather, he wants to get rid of all the Jews because if Mordecai was not doing it because he was a Jew, then every other Jew in the country would not bow to him. And he could not stand that. So let's get rid of all the Jews. So he talked to the king. I don't know how this all worked. Um, Let's read verse 7. In the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is the lot, before Haman from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is the month Aden. And Haman said unto the king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws, therefore it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. And then he went on and told the king that we should surely destroy all these people and I'm willing to pay the money for having them destroyed if I can just have your blessing to destroy them. So the king took his ring from his hand and gave it to Haman and said, whatever you want to do, do it. That's just fine. Get rid of them all. Um, Verse 8 talks about, no, verse 7. They were casting lots from day to day and month to month. Somewhere it talked like they were casting lots to find out when they should destroy all the Jews. 
So it would seem like that verse should be after he talked to the king about it. And apparently the lot fell on the 13th day. No, the 13th day of the first month was when they wrote the letters. And it was supposed to happen on the 13th day of the 12th month. So they had 11 months to get ready for this. Which was a good thing that it was put that far in the future. Um, So anyway, that was what the decisions were. And so they quickly got busy and wrote letters and sent them throughout all the land saying that on the 13th day of the 12th month we're going to get rid of the Jews. Everybody is supposed to help just get rid of the Jews and take whatever they have for ourselves. And then the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the country was perplexed. I suppose they were perplexed because there was lots of Jews there. There was probably some intermarriage had happened. So families would be torn apart. Businesses would be destroyed. It would just wreck the whole country. They were perplexed. But the king king and Haman sat down to drink. They thought, ah, this is just normal business. Can you imagine getting a letter like that in the mail saying on this certain day we're going to come in and kill your whole family? There's nothing you can do about it. You know, it's bad enough to get a letter from the IRS, but that's pretty small compared to a letter like this. And I don't think the king realized um, who Haman was talking about. It seemed like Haman never mentioned the name. He just said, there is a people that has laws diverse from your laws, and they aren't going to listen to you, and it's not good for you to have them in your kingdom. But he never said who they were, and Hazuiris just said, "Uh, yeah, let's get rid of them. It's not good for me to have them around. Let's get rid of them. But he didn't bother trying to figure out who they were. So going on to chapter 4, when Mordecai perceived all that had been done, Mordecai rent his clothes, put on sackcloth with ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry and wandered around until he came before the king's gate. He didn't sit in the gates because nobody was supposed to sit in there with sackcloth. And that was a story in every province. Whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was a great mourning among the Jews, and fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And then somebody noticed that Mordecai was out there in sackcloth and ashes. And they went and asked him, what's the matter with him? They took other good clothes for him to wear. And he said, nope, I'm not going to wear other clothes. I put sackcloth on for a reason. It seems like the people in the palace around the king did not even have any idea what was going on. So there was some communication between Esther and Mordecai, but it was all secondhand communication. I don't know if Esther couldn't go out there because he was in sackcloth. But she sent Hatak out to Mordecai to talk with him. And Mordecai told him everything that happened and what's going to happen in the future and even gave him a copy of the writing and sent it back to Esther and told Esther that she should go into the king to make supplication unto him and to make request for him for her people. So when Esther heard that, she said, Oh, well, go tell Mordecai that anybody that goes in before the king uncalled for is likely to be slain unless the king has pity on him and holds out his golden scepter. 
So they told Mordecai that, and then Mordecai told back, said, Tell her that she will not escape any more than any of the rest. You are a Jew, and you will not escape this punishment, because... Not because. And if you don't go, God will allow deliverance to come from somewhere else. He didn't mention the word God. In fact, it's not even mentioned in this book. But it says, Then shall enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. And then it's interesting, he says, But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. I wondered why he thought that they would be destroyed if the rest of the Jews would be delivered. I don't know, but it almost seems like he was so sure that Esther was here for this purpose alone. And if she doesn't fulfill it, her and her house will be destroyed. Even though, he says, who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Esther said, okay, tell Mordecai that if you get all the Jews in Shushan to fast for me for three days. Don't eat or drink night and day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. So will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And then her famous words, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai I didn't give her much option, did he? <clears throat> And she was still willing to listen to him and saw the wisdom of it and said, yes, I will do my part. I don't know if I'll survive or not, but I won't anyway, so I might as well try. So after three days, now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate. Oh, yeah, before I get here, um, it says that she didn't want to go in to see the king because the king didn't call for her for three days, 30 days, which was a little unusual. It seemed like a long time that the king had not called for her, and so she wasn't sure what was going on. Maybe the king's upset with her. He didn't know, she didn't know. But anyway, <clears throat> that was putting a little bit of caution in her because she wasn't called for so long, but... She went anyway, and it was so when the king saw her, Esther, the queen, standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in her hand. So her life was saved in this case. She found favor in the king's eyes, and he wanted to see her. And I've wondered already if it would have been, um, oh, how should I say, if she would have bowed to the desires, not the desires, if she would have bowed to the ways of the other virgins or the other people of that time and kingdom in trying to deck herself out and obtain the king's favor by doing that, <clears throat> if the king would have despised her at this point and said, nah, I don't want to have anything to do with you. But because she was not that type of a person and her character shone out, that that was enough to make the king desire to ask her what she wanted. I think it very well could have made the difference. So the king said, come and I will, I want to know what you want. You want something, that's why you came. What is thy request? It shall be given even to half of the kingdom. Wow, he was really generous. And I suppose she knew more about the king than I did. I'm sure she did. But if it would have been me, I would have thought, wow, if he's willing to give half the kingdom, I can just tell him what I want right there and he'll listen. But no, she was more cautious. And I think she wanted Haman there as well. So she said, I want you and Haman to come to a banquet today. I want you to come to a meal that I'm going to have for you. So that happened. She made a meal and Haman and the king went there. And 
The king, of course, knew that there was something more that Haman, that Esther wanted, so he asked her again. And she said, well, I'm going to have another banquet for you tomorrow. And at that banquet, I will ask, I will ask, tell you what I want. So he decided, okay, we'll wait till tomorrow. And this was really pumping Haman up because he was so impressed that it was just him and the king went into Esther to this banquet. He is, he is just right next to the king and he was getting so excited. In verse 9, Then went Haman forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, he refrained himself, and when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh, his wife, and he told them all about these good things that are happening. And tomorrow I'm going to go back to a banquet again. I mean, things are just really falling into place. But verse 13, yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Oh, that was just terrible to see Mordecai there, and he wouldn't bow. That spoiled all his good stuff that he was experiencing. It would seem like he could have just overlooked that and enjoyed the pleasures of life, but nope, that was just too much. He couldn't handle it. So he decided he's going to try to get rid of Mordecai. And his friends all told him to. Make a big gallows, and tomorrow you talk to the king and say how, tell him how bad Mordecai is, and he needs to be hung on the gallows. So he got that all done, and he couldn't sleep very good either, so he got up early in the morning and went to the king. <clears throat> I suppose it was, it was in the morning anyway. But it's very interesting how God worked. It says, on this night could not the king sleep. And he didn't know what else to do, so he brought the records of the kingdom, chronicles, and they read them before the king, and one thing that stood out to him was that somebody saved his life. Mordecai saved his life. Oh, well, was anything done to him to reward him for this? And the king's servant said, no, nothing was ever done for him. And so the king decided he wanted to do something, and he heard somebody out in the courtroom. Who's out there? And they said, oh, Haman's out there. And this is just a very interesting part of the story. How that he called Haman in and said, uh, I'd like to really honor someone. How would I, how would the, how, what would be the best way to honor, to show honor to a man that the king wants to honor? And of course, Haman, in his pride, could only think of himself. Well, I know that I'm the most honorable person in all the kingdom. The king loves me more than anyone else, and so there's no one else that he could want to glorify or honor. So he met, went down through this list of how he should honor this man, all the things that he would have liked, put a royal crown on his head and royal apparel and ride on the king's horse and walk through the streets, proclaiming this is what happens to the man that the king wants to honor. And then the king said, Make haste and take the apparel and the horse, as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. <clears throat> I would have loved to see that. <laughs> I wonder how he sounded when he walked through the streets. Would he say in a proud way, Look at this, this is really great. Or would he hang his head and kind of say apologetically, this is what the king wants to do to the person that he honors? I don't know, but I think a lot of the people in the city and the palace kind of knew what Haman was like, and they knew that he did not like Mordecai. They knew some of the stuff he was trying to get done. <clears throat> we'll see that a little later. And another thing that I think is very interesting is that the king said, do even so to Mordecai the Jew. The king knew that Mordecai was a Jew. That was not hidden from him. But it seemed like the king did not connect the fact that the Jews were the ones that were supposed to be killed. 
like he was some unknown people that he wasn't even aware of. Because if he was going to honor Mordecai, why would he be so willing to let all the Jews be killed? I don't know. But anyway, after Haman got done with his parading, he went home with his head covered. He was so ashamed. And Haman told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shalt surely fall before him. I find that very interesting, that these people knew that if he was starting to fall before Mordecai the Jew, that he was going to fall clear to the bottom. I don't know if they had some uh, knowledge of how God works with the Jews. If God starts promoting the Jews that there's nothing you can do about it, I don't know what, if it was just a prophecy that came upon them, but it was very true. And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther had prepared. Haman was so overtaken with his humility or his uh, um, demotion (laughs) that he forgot to go to the banquet, which the day before he was so excited that he gets to go the second time, but this time now he forgot to go. So he went to the banquet, and this time Esther gave the request. The king said again, I'll give you half the kingdom, whatever you request. So she said, O king, if it please, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request, for we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther, the queen, Who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen, and he definitely should have been. And the king responded a little differently than I expected. The king arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath went out into the palace garden. It seemed like he was just so angry that he could not even stand to look at Haman. But Haman saw the king's face and he saw that evil was determined against him. And then the king came back in and accused Haman of even forcing the queen. It says, as the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. What did that mean, that they covered Haman's face? It would almost appear like they covered his face because they knew he was condemned to die. And I think Haman knew it too. And then Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows, fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standing, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. So that's what they did. So Harbona, one of the chamberlains, knew exactly what Haman was trying to do to get rid of Mordecai. They knew he made the gallows. They knew all about it. And instantly he turned against Haman on the king's side, because that's always a good idea to be on the king's side. He was willing to help get rid of Haman and gave that suggestion, and the king said, good suggestion, let's do that. So instantly the king turned against Haman. There was no friendship there, and the king got rid of him. So after that was all taken care of and... uh, The king gave Esther Haman's estate, and Esther gave it to Mordecai, and Mordecai took Haman's place, and all things were in place again. Then Esther came before the king and said, We still have not changed that um, 
law against the Jews. Please. She even fell down and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite. So the business really wasn't taken care of yet. They got rid of Haman, but they still had this law. So the king said, yes, I will, I will help take care of this. You can do whatever you want to reverse those letters. She said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and things seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadath of the Agagite. And it would seem to me that they could have just said, let's just get rid of that rule and nothing's supposed to happen. Let's just go back the way it was before. But the law of the Medes and the Persians could not be changed. So they had to write another law to counteract this law. So the law they wrote was that the Jews can stand up and fight for themselves. And as this was all happening, it says many people in the land. Let's see, where does it say that? Oh yeah, they wrote these letters and sent them throughout all the country and gave the Jews the right to fight for their lives. And then Mordecai became a great man. And the Jews had light and gladness. Yeah. Verse 17 of chapter 8. And many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. They saw that God was blessing the Jews, and so they wanted to join them too. So when the twelfth month came along, the thirteenth day of the month, there were still enemies that wanted to get rid of the Jews. I would have, I was, seems a little surprising that there was anybody left that wanted to get rid of the Jews after all this, but they were still there, and so the Jews had a lot of people on their side fighting, and even the rulers. Says in verse 3 of chapter 9, all the rulers of the provinces and the lieutenants and the deputies and officers of the king helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. So they had everybody on their side, the whole army. And the enemies of the Jews had no power. And the Jews smote many people that day 500 one day in Shushan the palace and 300 the next day and in the rest of the palace I think they smoked 75,000 people. And then they had a feast day. So I think that's all we'll uh, talk about there. But we see how God brought deliverance for them. I'd like to just go over a little bit of some of the main characters in the story and uh, talk about them a bit. First of all was Ahasuerus. He had a lust for power and glory that caused him to make some foolish choices. Lots of foolish choices. But he also saw the godly character of Esther and responded to that. It seemed like in his last years he was He saw the godly character of Esther, and it made a difference in his life. Next one is Vashti, who was willing to sacrifice her position to maintain her own modesty and dignity. And we don't know what happened to her, but she was no longer spoken of. She probably became a common person. Number three, we have Haman, who was an extremely proud man. There was nothing too hard for him if it lifted him up. And whatever stood in his way must be gotten rid of. Even the smallest thing, such as Mordecai not bowing. One person not bowing and he just could not stand it. But God noticed him and took care of him. Surely pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Next one is Mordecai. He was faithful even in the small things. It started when he took care of his orphan cousin. When he adopted his cousin and took her for his own daughter, he had no idea what all was going to happen as a result of that. 
but he was faithful in doing that, and when opportunity came, he was faithful in reaching out in those opportunities. He continued watching out for her even when she went to the palace. He sat in the king's gate. He was not ashamed of being a Jew. Whatever that meant for not bowing to Haman, he was not ashamed of that and be willing to even risk his life. And God noticed him and rewarded him. And then we come to Esther. Even though she had difficulties in her young life, became an orphan, she did not allow that to make her bitter, but rather used them as stepping stones to become a godly character. Also, she did not let her position or worldly influences change her character. She stayed the same. If she would have changed, she likely would not have been able to persuade the king. She was also willing to identify with God's people and risk her life to save them. This is a beautiful story. We all like this story. It's almost like a fairy tale, isn't it? A beautiful girl becomes a hero and saves God's people. Bad men are destroyed and good men are promoted. I mean, this is just a fairy tale, classic fairy tale, isn't it? <clears throat> we like to see this, that God delivered his people. But in this life, we have no guarantee that things are going to turn out good, do we? It won't always turn out like it did for Esther and Mordecai. What about John the Baptist? Things didn't turn out so well for him, did they? He lost his head because he was willing to speak out for God. If we read in Hebrews 11, there's a list of people there that um, put to flight the armies of the aliens, were delivered from stop the mouths of lions, and out a whole list of people that did great things. But then it switches over and says, others were tortured and cast into prison, were sawn asunder, and bad things happened. So how does that work? <clears throat> some were delivered and some were not. Just let's remember that in this life, all things are temporary. If good things happen to us, it's only temporary. Let's always remember that. If bad things happen, it's only temporary. Everything here is temporary. But there's coming a day when everything will turn out right for the people of God. There's, no, there's perfect guarantee for that, 100% guaranteed. In Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. <clears throat>